0: You ready? I am.
1: Hello and welcome. <laughs> that Sorry. was a perfect start. <laughs> Sorry. Hello and welcome to the Breathe Upon Waking podcast. Yeah. That was perfect. Is that the name of your podcast? Breathe, Breathe Upon Waking. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Think so? Yeah. Uh-huh. Cool. It, 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 that's a really good name. Cool.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. So I'm excited to be here with David Elliott. David, thank you for being here.
1: I'm happy to be here, especially in my own house. Yeah, so I guess I'm here. You're,
0: you already were here. I'm
1: happy you're here.
0: <laughs> cool. Um, you know, I, I was thinking of how to introduce, and I've been doing this a couple times now and wondering how to introduce people, and a lot of times it's what they do for work, you know, so it would be author David Elliot but to me like if someone introduced me that would be you know landscaper James Thorpe <laughs> or and i but i i think we we kind of limit people when we do that and uh yeah are you doing more than
1: being an author well you know as you know James i taught college for many years i taught at Colby Sawyer for 15 years and other schools before that uh and then, I have to say it it is in my nature that when I leave a place, it's gone. oh, so that isn't that isn't always the best way to be, but it's just how I am, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. so when I left colby Sawyer, um it was like, "I loved it, bye bye, yeah <laughs> uh and then since then i've been I've been writing but you know, I do have other interests, but I guess I'm kind of indolent. No. <laughs> maybe you should just say author David Elliott because. Okay. Uh, now, how many years ago did you leave Colby Sawyer? I think I'm in my sixth year now of okay. having left. Yeah. Okay.
0: And I took a class. I, I know I took adolescent literature with you. I'm not sure if anything else.
1: Yeah, I can't. I can't remember, but I know you were in that. Yeah. So
0: I did. I did have a class with you. Know? Yeah that was it was very cool to have a class with an author and then you know you've written some books you've written some children's books um, and some uh, what would you call mid-level or um, adolescent
1: well the one of the things about writing for a general audience and writing for kids I think one of the things that's different is when somebody says they write for young people you don't know exactly what that means Mm. so some people write picture books at the very young end mm-hmm. and then the next step up would be uh, you write middle grade books middle grade novels so that's for like say grades a precocious second grader to a less precocious sixth grader maybe mm-hmm. uh, and then after that the next step is uh, YA or young adult okay. so uh, and you know those lines are all kind of yeah. liquid they're yeah. not formed so um i actually write in the whole spectrum of those things my last two books i think i had a picture book in between but my last two books have been marketed for 14 years and then through adult okay yeah so that those are novels in verse so so yeah
0: nice so I read I've read a lot of the books to my daughter, uh the the picture books. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and that's just exciting saying that, you know, this was my college professor and um so we have a lot of fun with that. Um actually last night uh we were reading uh, looking at a couple of them and she wanted to ask what is your favorite animal? Oh.
1: And, and you have to choose one oh. right, right now. Yeah. That's so hard. So uh, you know, I've written five books of verses about animals. So mm-hmm. that's probably why she's asking <laughs> that. And actually, I have three more. And I figured I will have written about 135 verses oh, wow. about the animal world. Yeah. But I think if... Your daughter's name is Madeline? Matilda. Matilda, sorry. That's okay. Um, I would have to say, Matilda, that my favorite animal is the tiger. Oh. So if you look right here on my on this side table, uh huh. It says Tiger, the ultimate guide, Mills, there's another book about tigers. Yep. Uh and um I was writing in the wild and I had written I probably wrote twenty five different verses about tigers. I think we read
0: that one last night. Yeah. Uh oh yeah. Yeah.
1: And none of them were, none of them were good enough. I would call my friend Susan up and I would say, how about this one? Yeah. And she would say, well, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not a great sign. Not a great sign. <laughs> so um, then, you know, I realized that the trouble I was having was that, uh, you know, the great visionary and poet William Blake has, of course, written a poem called The Tiger that cites, you know, uh, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright in the Forests of the Night. Mm-hmm. And I realized that it, that would sort of be like me trying to sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. <laughs> I mean, Judy Garland's already done that, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. So in that verse, I tried then to honor William Blake by kind of calling forth that poem. Okay. But the tiger actually really, it, the, you know, I was supposed to be capturing the tiger, but in fact the tiger really captured me in my imagination and, oh, and still does.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Um, was that the animal in that book that you spoke to um, the patterns looking like flowers or was that the panther? Uh, that was the
1: jaguar. A jaguar. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Because I read, you know, I had, it's interesting. I'm, you know, when I wrote that book, I was in my sixties. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know what a, tiger looks like, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right? But in fact, I didn't really, it was kind of shocking to me when I realized that in fact, even with these iconic animals like jaguars and tigers and, you know, orangutans, for example, Mm -hmm. in fact, I knew nothing Mm. about them. And I don't know, it kind of made me think all the things I know nothing about that are around me Mm -hmm. all the time. And
0: sadly, maybe we only see them in a zoo here and there. Right. You know.
1: Right. So I did watch, I mean, I watched um, lots of, um, uh, I watched lots of YouTube videos about tigers. Mm-hmm. Cy Montgomery, who also lives here in New Hampshire, has a great book about uh, going to look for a tiger and the tiger uh, preserve in India. Mm-hmm. Then I read about the man-eating tigers in the Sundarbans which is a swamp area oh. between I think Bangladesh and India and they actually swim tigers love to swim and so they oh, cats hate water <laughs> yeah I know they love water and wow. so they actually would swim up and grab fishermen out of their boat oh wow and there's a, I just saw a book in Toadstool there's a new book about some a particular man-eating tiger Oh wow. and I'm going to get that book. I can't wait to read it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting.
0: So, Tiger, okay. Um, So, can you take us back a little bit to the beginning of your story
1: and where you were born and where you're from? Yeah. um, I'm from a little town in Ohio. Bell Ohio is the name of it. Uh, um, My family was poor and not very happy, I would say. Uh, my dad was kind of a... Well, the joke that I say to my sisters is my mother had a very bad personality, but very good character. And mm-hmm. my father had a very good personality, but very, very bad character. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it was a very volatile situation. Sure. Um, and uh, not much money. It wasn't a uh, liter- My mother... Quit school when she was 16 to marry my dad and she was the val- valedictorian would have been the valedictorian of her class Wow! My dad finished eighth grade uh, I think he finished eighth grade. So it was not you know, it wasn't a literary household. Yeah uh, My was it mom a farm? no, it was, was in uh, right in town my, my mom worked in a factory to support us all and then later Uh, By the time I was in high school, my dad did work. But up to then, it was really my mom who did everything. Okay. So, um, you know, I... And, you know, I I was just saying earlier, before we started, you know, I wasn't athletic. Mm -hmm. It was the 60s. I loved to sing. I so was was not cool. And uh, luckily, I was funny. Was there any theater or anything in, in the there? Schools? Was yeah, uh huh. So I did that. Good. And uh, but still, even then, there weren't like theater geeks the way there are now, for yeah. example. So uh, I think the thing that carried me through, I read, even though you know I was graduated nearly at the bottom of my class.
0: Well, who influenced you to read? If there weren't books, a lot of books going around
2: the house.
1: Well, my mom read mysteries. <clears throat> And uh, often she didn't have time to go to the library, so I would go to the library for her ah. and pick out these mysteries. And, you know, now I think about it, I, I'm not sure if this is true in libraries now, but the spines of the mysteries have skulls and crossbones on oh, them. Oh, really? And my mother was like this upstanding Baptist woman. Yeah. As I often said to her in in my adult life, if all Christians were like her, I would be one, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, skull and cross on I, all of her books, right? And I thought, <laughs> as, as an adult, I thought about it, and you know, they had titles like you know, axe in the head, and all that. Now yeah. I, th- I think she was really thinking about my father when she, <laughs> when she was reading those books. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I read a lot. It was a way to kind of, I could enter a world that was safer than the one I was living in mm-hmm. and then also I was funny and that helped in high school mm-hmm. so uh, but I was very glad to get out of that town and to get out of Ohio which I did go to college I went to Ohio State uh, you know I, I was never I have to say this I was never a good student
0: okay
1: uh, in high school I was too distracted and crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in college, you know, I would, one semester I would get all Fs and then the next semester I would get all As. Oh, really? So it was like... an average? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, an average, not all right. Were you enjoying writing, though, at the time? Or? Not really. No. no. I mean, it, I, in high school, I wrote for the high school newspaper until I wrote something that I thought was really funny about a teacher. And she didn't think it was that funny. That ended my writing career. But in high school... And I didn't, I don't know, I had too many other things on my mind. Yeah. I didn't really start writing seriously. So my son is 32 now, and I think he was about three or four when I actually wrote my first kid's book. Okay. What did you go
0: to Ohio State for?
1: Uh, I studied anthropology, mm-hmm. which I liked. But now I wish I had studied classics. Mm-hmm. Or maybe art history. Hmm. But I didn't I didn't even know such things existed really. Right. Yeah. So Well, how did you get here from there? Oh. Then I traveled a lot. I when I said I had to get out of Ohio, I joined Peace Corps. My family was poor, so that was the only way I was ever gonna get to oh. go anywhere. So I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the Philippines and then for the next 10 years or so, I, I I, lived and worked mostly overseas. But work means like washing cucumbers at the Cree Creek Cucumber Factory. I was going to ask you about some of these jobs that, I, that I've seen that you
0: had. So, yeah. So what was that like, the cucumber washing? Well,
1: I, as I've said before, you cannot understand Freud unless you've washed cucumbers. A, a lot of a them. A lot of them. Right. It's got a... Slip into your mind. Yeah, probably immediately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So okay. um, it was kind of crazy. I was working with what then were called gypsies, but now we call Roma people, and it was, mm. you know, the women with scarves and coins hanging down, and mm-hmm. um, they were itinerant workers, and I had run out of money, so that's why I was doing that. Yeah, and then I also picked olives uh, in Greece. I worked as a singer in Mexico. What was that? Uh, That was, um, I was working at uh, a restaurant in Cuernavaca called El Plaza del Sol. And I was singing Beatles songs and Cat Stevens on the guitar and singing. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, And then I, the last place I was, uh, from Mexico I went to Libya. So actually, probably the only person you know that has gone from the. Halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. I think. Yeah. And I was supposed to be teaching in Libya, but they never provided any students. So I was there for 10 months. I was getting paid, oh. but just hanging around. Did you enjoy the time there? Were
0: there? Was there something to do?
1: Well, it was a strange place, mm-hmm. really. Uh, and... The whole time I was there, I was followed by a secret police. um, And the Libyans were very... um, Because I was there when Gaddafi was in charge. Mm -hmm. So um, the Libyans... I think they would like to have been much friendlier, Mm -hmm. but it would have been dangerous for them to be. But there are... Some people don't realize this, but some of the most magnificent Roman ruins in the world are in Libya. Oh, really? So one is called uh, Sabratha and the other one's called Luctus Magna. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I went to those and I went to, we just hung out. We went to hookah you went to hookah places and had a hookah and a yeah. cup of tea and tried to learn a little Arabic.
2: Hmm. Interesting.
1: Yeah, it was, a, it was a very strange 10 months, I would say. What about the? Popsicle stick
0: making in <laughs> yeah. Israel.
1: Yeah, because um, it was when I was in Greece and I ran out of money almost immediately. And so someone said, oh, you should go to Israel. You can get on a kibbutz. I'm not Jewish, but they said, you can get on kibbutz and work and you'll be fed and you'll be okay. So I went, that's what I did. Oh, yeah. uh, and I worked at kibbutz gonen, which is up on the Lebanese border. And... Um, I had several jobs there. I was an apple picker, but you know those buckets that the electric thing. Well, so I'm dyslectic. So oh. I would I would want to go over there, and I would swing the bucket over there and get it lodged between <laughs> branches. So uh, from there, I hauled fish, but I couldn't take that. There were fish ponds there, and oh. then I ended up in the popsicle stick factory. Oh, so uh, yeah, I made popsicle sticks. Interesting.
0: (laughs) So like the world travel and all these, you know, interesting jobs, you must have met some amazing people that, that must have really shaped, you know, who you are today, at least. Yeah. You know, and how you think.
1: Well, I I think, I mean, I know that sounds kind of exotic and adventurous and all of that, and I suppose it was, but Mm -hmm. what I'm leaving out is how lonely I was, how messed up I was, Mm -hmm. how I wasn't really facing... Uh, my history in in a way and trying to trying to get as far from it as i could but Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't work Mm -hmm. (laughs) so uh while i'm very very glad i did it uh it was also in many ways like lost years Mm -hmm. but also what it did do is this sounds kind of corny but I do feel like a citizen of the world now mm-hmm. because I've lived in many different cultures and uh, have experienced many different ways of thinking and different ways of being yeah and
0: uh, well in a way you were kind of running away from something but it seems like you were also contending with the world on your own you know so there's that adventure piece and that, you know, you're still uh, you're still out there battling. You didn't you didn't go in the basement and hide That's, well, another, <laughs> yeah, that's, another option. that's true.
1: That's true. I guess that's right, you yeah. know, I had not really thought of that, but and it also seems
0: like um, Did was there a sense of like you didn't realize What it was all like until you know 10 or 20 years later or how it affected you I guess
1: <clears throat> well Now, I don't know if it's just in my nature or if those 10 years kind of developed this attitude, Mm -hmm. but I am comfortable wherever I am. Mm. So, uh, and I would say I'm fairly resourceful because those 10 years taught me you had to be, because again, I wasn't, there were... There were few times that I had any kind of umbrella, Peace Corps, of course, that I didn't have to worry about. But almost all the other times, there, were, there was no organizing structure. Yeah. Uh, and so... That can be really intimidating. Yeah. And I think it was maybe less so then mm-hmm. than it might be now because the world is different. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, there were many times I had to figure out where I was going to sleep or how I was going to get from point A to point B or even if I was going to get from point A to point <laughs> yeah. B. Yeah. So yeah, I, that can really
0: develop a lot of character, I think, doing that stuff yeah. on
1: your own. Yeah. I am not, I would say, I am not afraid of the world and its people. Yeah. So, um, good. I mean, I'm afraid of many other things, yeah. but that... That I have not, and I I think part of it was those 10 years. Yeah, interesting. Now what brought you to New Hampshire? Uh, I was teaching at Ohio State, and uh, I had my first book published, and I knew then that I really wanted to write. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Ohio State was, uh, I was on a yearly teaching, year-round teaching schedule. And uh, I'm from Ohio, and um, I don't want to say anything bad about Ohio, but New England feels more like my spiritual home. I'd spent time there before. Oh, you did? I did. So, um, and my wife was born in, even though she was born in Walla Walla, Washington, uh, she spent her early childhood in Burlington, Vermont. Oh. And so she also has heart for New England. Sure. Uh, so I saw the job at Colby Sawyer thinking I'll never get this job. When I did had the interview, I thought I didn't want the job. And so I was very honest in, uh, in a way that you're not usually in an interview. Yeah. But I got it. So, uh, you know. Uh, here I am, twenty-five years later. Yeah. What can you
0: say about twenty years teaching later teaching students at the college level? What is that like, and what's your perspective there?
1: Well, I loved it. You did I did? Uh, you know, I didn't like any of the administrative stuff that went with it. Seems typical. Right? Yeah. or sounds like a typical right concern. But I loved being with, I love being with young people. Mm-hmm. You know, people, I'm 71 now. And even now, people my age, generally, I find kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> That's awful to say. But, you know, like people talking about their health, and even like retirement. I went here and did this, I went there and did that. It's just, I find it, like, okay. So, uh, and so, like, one of our best friends here in town, they're old enough to be really my son and daughter. Okay. But, um, you know, I like being around young people. I I found the students at Colby Sawyer really maddening sometimes, Mm -hmm. but also very, they were sweet often. Mhm. And um you know, that part I miss. Mhm. Yeah.
0: I think uh a lot of you know, now that I've I've kind of aged out of that um group, as you age, you always look at the younger years or the kids coming up as not as hard working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't do anything. They sit around and but I think I think they get a really bad rap and I think we it uh it we should appreciate you know their perspective more they're the ones that are uh, i use that word contending again like contending at the edge of you know everything that's current and and bargaining with it
1: right and right now everything that's current in my humble opinion not so humble is is mighty I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult for me to understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's happening? So, for somebody who is nineteen or twenty and trying to look at the world and seeing what the future might be like, mm-hmm. when there's so many dire predictions, and when you, you know, when you hear so much hateful rhetoric mm-hmm. coming out of the White House Mm -hmm. and its people, it's just hard to understand. I mean, I I could not believe, you know, can we talk politics one second? Sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I couldn't believe that, you know, Mick Mulvaney, the uh, interim chief of staff, Mm -hmm. was on the talk show Sunday morning saying, how many times do I have to say the president is not a white supremacist? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what I, I wanted to say is, you know, the fact that you have to say it once <laughs> right. is is even all we need is, to know. Yeah, enough and too much. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a world that I never, I think, like many of my, my feelings, are not so original or mm-hmm. important even. It's just so shocking. It's hard to know. So for
0: kids to even try to
1: figure that out right it must be difficult it must be so hard and for them at least for the last couple of years it's been the norm Mm -hmm. so that's kind of worrisome yeah so
0: in in a way i try to tune out a lot of it more recently it's interesting the change of seasons that that i deal with because because i do landscaping Mm. and I'm in my truck a lot and I do hear a lot of news In the winter I really shut down and I kind of block all that out and but I I believe in that a little bit and not letting what's going on in the world control your emotions or your happiness or how content you are not that you should be unaware um, but that you can you know not let it I guess dictate how you feel.
1: It's true because if you did, you'd be feeling bad yeah, <laughs> and hopeless. That's
0: what I see a lot of you know, a lot of people caught up in it and complaining and upset which I can understand. Yeah. Um, but I guess I try to I try to put a buffer or something mental.
1: <laughs> I think you have to. And we have to have hope. Yeah. You know, you have to in a certain way you have to be naive mm-hmm. in order to right. live a good life. Right because if we didn't if you didn't have hope, there would be no reason to get up in the morning mm-hmm. and and hope actually is for the hopeless situation. <laughs> if there were not hopelessness you wouldn't need to have hope, yeah, and so um, I think your point of view is very well taken this morning, speaking about hope,
0: I should talk about this because I had a I had a significant morning. I, uh, you know, I haven't had anything in particular that's been really difficult lately. But it's, you know, there are challenging times in all of our lives, uh-huh. and uh, so I had a, a couple of days where you know it was a little bit tough. And this morning I woke up and there was a gift basket when I opened my door, and you know I, that's never happened to me. Uh-huh. I've I've never received a gift basket like this. You know, uh-huh. A couple bottles of wine, you know, just like perfect bottles of wine, cookies and, and it just, and that, you know, just that, that, that was hope. Yeah. You know, Uh, and it just totally shaped my day. And I thought, you know, I think people only need a little bit of hope too, to maintain that optimism and to get
1: them through. Right. And sadly, a lot of us don't find it. Right. It's kind of, you know, like it's hope is sort of like, Oh, you're a little pregnant. You're, <laughs> you're either pregnant or you're not, right? right so yeah. hope is either it's either there or it's not. And I, I like that story of you're finding the gift basket. I was just thinking about this. I have to prepare some things for school <laughs> visits for uh, the new book. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things I want to say to these high school kids is life is surprising. You have to be ready for the surprise mm-hmm. so that when you open the door and the gift basket is there, yeah. you see it, <laughs> right? Yep. So that's that's good. I'm glad you got that gift basket.
0: Yeah, it felt awesome. Yeah,
1: I'll bet. <laughs> My address is 228 Kearsarge Mountain Road. <laughs> for anybody who wants to send me a gift, gift basket. basket. <laughs> awesome.
0: So speaking of surprise, yeah. were you ever... You must have been, but were you ever surprised by what college students said or their ability, their, their writing abilities, their, what they were thinking? You must have been surprised.
1: Yeah. Uh, often, not a good surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, most recently, well, I can think of two things, two moments Um, this was at Colby Sawyer and I was teaching an intro to creative writing class and we were starting the poetry um, unit. And, oh, I cannot remember her name, but she was probably about your time. Mm -hmm. Professor? No, A a student. And so, we were talking about, I was introducing various forms of poetry, I like formal poetry, Mm -hmm. and so we were talking about the Villanelle. And I read uh, probably the most famous Villanelle uh, called One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. Uh, And the first line is, the art of losing isn't hard to master. And then she goes on to say, it's a poem about loss. And I looked up and I can't remember her name, Caitlin maybe. Hmm. And her face was just glowing. Mm -hmm. It was as if she really understood the wonder of that poem. Mm -hmm. I will never forget that. It was just, it was a small moment, but it really looked to me like light was shining on her. Wow. And actually it was coming, I think from inside her. Mm And then uh, last year, I was a writer in residence at Truman State University in Missouri. And so I taught there for a week, uh, and I was working on voices, and voices is using these medieval forms of poetry, some of which are still popular today, and still used today. Uh, And so it was very ambitious, but so I thought, okay, we're gonna do a triolet and a sestina in one week. And there was one, his name was Paul, he was the youngest kid in the class. And it was a kind of thing where I said, okay, here is a sestina. We went over it, it's 39 lines long, it's got all these repeated words that are in different combinations. Bring one in tomorrow, which is so unrealistic. <laughs> but i just said, okay we've got to we don't have that much time and i just wanted them the experience of just doing get it. a draft right right, right so they could work on their own yeah and this boy paul brought in the most beautiful sestina about sledding oh, really? with his brother and younger sister and um, it was so wonderful because a sestina uh it kind of rolls, it has a movement of its own, mm-hmm. and sledding was the perfect topic. Yeah. it has a momentum, and sledding was like so i he he kind of understood that instinctively mm.
0: yeah, I wonder if it was conscious yeah i
1: don't yeah. i I didn't ask him at the time, I think I was too amazed mm-hmm. by it, and I hope he's still writing
0: yeah, I guess it's the best when the form meets up with the
1: content, right that's it. That's the whole thing about that. That's exactly right. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Nice. So, let's get into some of your writing. Okay. After teach, well, no, even before teaching, you started writing. Um, what were some of the topics you were thinking of? Why did Why did you write some of these books? And.
1: Well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know. Uh, You know, I think it was Ray Bradbury who said, don't tell me what I do. I don't want to know. (laughs) And I understand that. You know, I think he was really talking about not being conscious exactly of what you're doing. Mm. If I'm really that conscious of it, it's bound to be bad. Mm. Because I'm going to put my own whatever I think is smart in there. Yeah. And it's always not smart. Yeah. So, it's, it's, and I'm not being disingenuous, but that's hard to answer. I mean, I like with Bull, which was published, I think, in 2017. So, if your listeners don't know, it's a YA novel in verse about the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always loved that myth. You have? I have, Uh, but my sympathies have always been perversely, possibly, with the Minotaur, because we have so much of Theseus in our lives. You know, every action hero, every Mm -hmm. muscled person, you know, beating somebody, beating the villain to a pulp, and then going have a hamburger and a (laughs) shake. You know, we see that person all the time. Yeah. And I'm not sure that's exactly what a hero is, Mm. at least in my view. Why not? Why could it be something else? Well, for one thing, that person always resorts to violence. The, you know, the first response is always, to hit somebody over the head with a club. Right? It's like caveman stuff. Right. So, and I think it's a mistake to hold up only only that image to young men, Mm -hmm. and to young women, about what a man is, Mm -hmm. or that kind of thing. So, in that myth, I, I always, my sympathies went to the Minotaur, because we know the circumstances of the Minotaur's birth. He's born, he's born with the head of a bull and the body of a man. But then the next thing is, he's in the labyrinth. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, they kind of put him in there as a baby. Mm -hmm. So what about his childhood? What about his adolescence? And what made him a monster? So those are the questions i kind of had when i started writing that book you know writers i think at least the writers i know they don't write to say what they know they write to find out what they don't know Mm. and so in that case those questions were what i didn't know and what i was interested in it seems that the the minotaur
0: would be more of a hero story and more relevant because of the adventure that he kind of willingly took on knowing his underdog status even or start i guess starting from the bottom and
1: right and you know in that book it, when I started really studying the myth uh I and I learned that the Minotaur has a name. He wasn't always the Minotaur. He was Asterion, mm-hmm. and that means ruler of the stars. Mm-hmm. And it it made me oh, I, it made me so sad when I learned that because I thought somebody loved him. Mm. Somebody, his mother, somebody loved him to right. give him that name, yeah, and to give him. That name so full of light and aspiration. Mm-hmm. And then what happened to him. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I ended up, I should speak for myself, but I think it's true for everybody. I, I sort of realized each of us, every day, well, I'm not speaking for myself. Every day, <laughs> you know, I realize I have the choice. Am I going to be Asterion, and live in the light, and rule my own stars? Or am I going to be the Minotaur, you know, stuck in the darkness of my own labyrinth, and all the dead ends, and the rage, and the anger, and all of that, that that kind of ensues. Hmm. And sometimes from minute to minute, we're switching back and forth between those two things. Yeah. So um.
0: well, I've really been noticing these type of archetypes and the storylines and a lot of things as I get older, and um, the light and the dark, and the the yin and the yang, and and you know that line that we're all that we're all walking. Um, but you know, you mentioned hope earlier, and and some of the write, well the writing you do is art and i think we were talking about art before the podcast and i think a lot of this stuff you know helps us on the positive helps us into the positive side of that
1: uh, you mean a lot of uh, art yeah does yeah yeah oh, i I, th- I think it does and, and i hope perhaps your writing has helped you
0: you know stay stay on the the light side. Yeah,
1: more. at least, at least it has. It is teaching me when I'm going to the dark side. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I can kind of feel it. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, hmm. I, I hadn't thought about how I've never really thought about it. Like how my writing has changed me. Mm-hmm. Huh. Interesting. I'm going to think about that.
0: Yeah. Um, was Bull the first? book that you used poetic form?
1: In. Well, in those um, those animal picture books that we were talking about in reference to Matilda, those are oh, yeah. all in verses. Yeah. But I had never written, first of all, I'd never I'm not really a poet. I would not describe myself in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the poets that I know have devoted their lives to their art. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very uh, arrogant of me to kind of horn in on that just because I've written these two books. Uh, But I will say, uh, you know, I mentioned my mom was a Baptist. In my younger years, I went to Baptist church every Sunday. Mm -hmm. And I think that my dad's family were all storytellers and um, so for, and and they had a particular kind of they were like I lived like on the not in Appalachia but just on the outskirts sure. of it and so for example i never heard my dad say thank you he always said much obliged oh yeah and my grandmother called umbrellas bumbershoots <laughs> i know never heard that i know And, uh, you know, a sofa was a Davenport. (laughs) So there was all this kind of rich language there. And then in church, there was all the hymn singing and the language of the sermons. And so I think it really helped me develop a good ear for what language should sound like or the possibilities of the way language could sound. Mm -hmm. And that was very helpful in writing. these books. Mm-hmm. So I now I'd never I'd never considered writing, you know, a two hundred page book all in verse and these oh, yeah. various forms that I had never used before. Interesting. Came out really nice.
0: Thanks. What about balancing the the classic nature of language and and the mythology that you're dealing with here, but then also a lot of the Modern language that you use, like there's LMAO in the book. Yeah. Right? Uh huh. So how do you do that? You know, with style and and dignity, I guess. Well, I,
1: I'm not sure I did go with <laughs> any dignity. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, you know, what happened is with that book, I I knew I wanted to write something about the Minotaur. I didn't know what. Yeah. And so. In my head, I had this first 11 lines, which is the prologue of the book. And that prologue is, There beneath the palace walls, the monster rages, foams, balls, Calling out again and again, Mother, Mother. No other sound but the scrape of horn on stone, The grinding crunch of human bone, Under calloused human foot. So I had that. In my head, I didn't write it down. I just really? had it in my head for five years. Were you scared you'd
0: lose it, or you just had it so?
1: Well, I repeated it. You know, when I was doing the dishes, when I was walking the dog, <laughs> when right before I was falling asleep. Okay. Because I could not, I could not get further into the story or the book. Mm-hmm. I only had that, and I thought, you know, that's kind of good but if I can say that but you know I thought oh okay but what about the rest of it (laughs) and I could never get to the what about the rest of it and I thought am I going to try to write the whole book in that kind of lyrical it would be so tiresome Mm -hmm. but I couldn't I just couldn't get there and then you know Poseidon plays a huge role in that myth Mm -hmm. and one day you know, I don't know. It's hard to kind of explain. But just, I heard Poseidon say, what up, bitches?
0: <laughs> I, thought, I was going to ask you <laughs> if you remember what the next line yeah,
1: is. Yeah. So
0: that's a good segue. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I thought. Just kind
0: of flaunting all his power. and Right.
1: Those two words tell you everything you need to know okay, about yeah, him. Yeah. And at the time, I thought, oh, no you know I'm so not cool right I'm not cool I've never said what up in my yeah. life um,
0: but now you have to use it but now I
1: had to <laughs> and it was the, really the it was the, it was like the key to the secret garden mm-hmm. it isn't that the book was easy to write but I knew I could write it just from those two words
0: nice yeah it kind of brought the balance right into it it did
1: And so then from there, all the other characters, you know, Poseidon continues to speak like that. It's kind of like a gang boss or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then from there, all the other characters kind of developed. Did you ever think, well, this isn't going to be accepted if I do that? Yes. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh.
0: So that was a worry.
1: It was. But, you know, the book... I sold the book to Houghton, to my fabulous editor there, Kate O'Sullivan. Um, she, she, my agent sent it, I think, to six or eight different editors. Mm-hmm. And I think two of those six said, basically, the subtext was, I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever send me anything by him again. Okay, uh, And... Four of them, and I think this was genuine. The basic message was, I love this, but either I'm scared of it, or two, uh, I would never know how to edit a book like this. Mm. Uh, Two people said yes, and eventually I went with Kate. I chose Kate O'Sullivan mm-hmm. because of what she said was, I love this. I have no idea who's gonna read it, but I love it. Yeah. So <laughs> I thought, okay, that's good. Yeah. It uh, almost
0: felt good to get that mix of responses and, and you knew you had something, good or bad. It was it was moving people.
1: Right. You know. So I knew you know, the book's kind of unusual, both in its form and in its brashness, I mm-hmm. think. So, uh, yeah, so that's, so anyway, she bought it based really only, I think, on the first 25 or 30 pages. Oh, really? So we signed it up, and then I, then I wrote it.
0: Now, what about the kids reading this book? Because, you know, we talked about the different ages, and it's, it's interesting, because I, I go to the Concord Public Library with Matilda, and your picture books are in the young kids section, and then over in the. The older kids section is is uh, is bull, mm-hmm. and you know as I was reading it, I was gonna immediately recommend it to my nephew, but I did have to think after I saw What Up Bitches, and well, I I'm gonna have to describe that to my sister or, yeah. or take <laughs> him through this, and right? So you know, what are you thinking about that, or do the editors have to think about that? And
1: well, I think they have to think about it, but you know, today in like YA literature. Almost anything goes. So, like linguistically, yeah. at least. Yeah. So, and you know, um, two librarians, or a librarian and a bookseller. So what happens is, before a book is published, they make this paperback version called The Arc, the advanced reading copy. And that goes out to uh, reviewers, and it goes out to people that they would like to blurb the book. Mm-hmm. So you get, you know, when it says early praise for. yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, Kate, my editor, sent it out to several people. And the first two responses that came back were basically, once I saw What Up, Bitches, I closed the book and I would not read it anymore. <laughs> uh, and another one said, another book by a man I'm not reading any books by men now. I mean, <laughs> But to me, that person's just crazy, so I didn't, yeah, I didn't yeah. care. But uh, it, was, it was a little worrisome. But the day the person said, when I saw What Up Bitches, I stopped reading the book, I was watching a rerun of Modern Family. Yeah. I don't know if you know that show. Yeah. So Alex, you know, the smart one, the smart daughter, it was awards day at school. Mm-hmm. And she walked in the living room and said something like, Clear off the shelf, bitches, because Mama's bringing home the trophy. So I thought, all right, if it's that out there. yeah. um, And, you know, there is, well, you know, there's the word dick in the... (laughs) Yeah,
0: well, I think there's, is is there a reference to Poseidon kind of pimping out or something to that effect?
1: Well, you know, well, the way the the, um, Minotaur is born is Poseidon causes the king's wife to lust after a bull. Right. And she satisfies her lust, and that's how the minister is yeah. born. Yeah. So I had to deal with that, and I did, I did that as best I could. Yeah. But at one point Poseidon says about Minos, um, man, that guy's a dick, yeah. but so much fun to hate. Like all dicks, though, he'll soon deflate. So <laughs> I know, I, my mother would be rolling over oh, in her yeah. grave right now <laughs> to hear. But you know, it's that was that was me. That was Poseidon, uh, and that's yeah. who he was. Yeah. So I wrote my editor and said, "Can I say this?" Yeah. And it was not a problem. Nice. So, which is one reason I love her. They were and everybody at how They were, they understood that it was a risk. Yeah. But they were willing to take a, a chance on it. Yeah. so I'm glad they did. It's definitely worth it. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, so the book that's coming out in, is it about a, two weeks? March 26th. So about today, Wednesday. I think two weeks from yesterday, maybe.
0: Yeah, okay. This is uh, The Voices. Right.
1: Joan of Arc. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Well... It was very difficult. Bull was also difficult, but, you know, Bull, one of the things I, you know, if I can be obnoxious, or I guess I am obnoxious, but, you know, Bull got six starred reviews. So starred reviews are unusual. So to get six, that's really very unusual. Wow. Um, And I think part of the reason people liked it is because even though it was so brash and sometimes so... Poseidon was so awful. I mean, it was also funny. Oh, it
0: was very funny. And yeah. I, I was laughing out loud I, many times. Lots of people have
1: <laughs> said that and it's kind of like, "Oh my god, I can't believe Poseidon just said that yeah. after this after this very poignant moment from the Minotaur." <laughs> and then Poseidon says, you know, says "wah wah wah" or something. Right. So, um, funny. Is my kind of go to place, and um you know the story of and in a way, I mean I think it's not it's not new information to say that you know humor is in many ways like an armor yeah for, for people mm-hmm. so so bull was funny. People liked the humor, and I felt sort of protected because I knew, I knew how to use humor in a way that that would sort of protect me in a way, in a way, or yeah. something. But you know, the story of Joan of Arc isn't funny, and I could not go to my easy place. Uh, and so, in a way, I had to take my own armor off. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was really hard. Mm. It was hard for me to do that. And what's hard, uh, originally, I thought I'm going to tell the whole story through the objects of her lives. That's what I said when I wrote the proposal, because again, um, you know, my agent sold it to Kate just based on, I think. 30 pages or something. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I'm going to... And so in the proposal, I said, I'm going to tell it only through the objects, blah, blah, blah. But I, I soon realized I could not do that. Was that a safe way out too? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, I think maybe it was. And you stopped yourself. Well, I only out of desperation because I couldn't do it. Oh, I mean, it I realized, is. okay, there's nobody here that can narrate the entire story. Because all of these objects, her armor or her dress or the needle she used, Mm -hmm. were all from different periods of her life. Mm -hmm. And so I knew she had to speak. Mm. But then I sort of felt honor-bound because Joan of Arc is one of those characters that every generation projects something onto. So, you know, she's a saint, she's a war hero, Mark Twain... Idolized her in a biography of her that he wrote. She was used in the suffrage movement, even in, now in the Me Too movement. Her name is, oh, if really? you if you um, Google images of Joan of Arc, one of the pictures that comes up is of the what's her name Emma is that her name the girl from the Parkhurst school shooting. I'm not sure. Yeah, so you know the girl with the shaved head. Mm-hmm. So. Every generation finds a way to tell the Joan of Arc story or to use the Joan of Arc story. But what I realized is that the actual, nobody can live up under that much projection. And the real person has disappeared, Mm -hmm. at least for me. And so I felt I wanted to be so careful about projecting anything onto her but of course she had to say something right. and I had to so uh, in order to kind of mitigate that then I used direct quotes from her trial because I, I sort of thought okay she should be able to speak for herself in this yeah. book you get to the pure essence of it
0: through her own language
1: right So there, I mean, my, my version of her is there too, but alongside it, you hear her actual words. Oh, interesting. So um, the book, you know, the architecture of a book is sometimes the key to its writing Mm -hmm. and it took me a long time to find the architecture of the book too. Oh yeah. I mean, I didn't hit on that idea until many, 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 many months into the writing of it. And then it it began to come together once I Mm -hmm. did that. But I struggled for a a long time.
0: Yeah, it doesn't seem lacking. The Joan of Arc story doesn't seem lacking at all in content. You know, it's it's a special story for for what she went through. Right. And and especially at that age. So I, I suppose you were kind of wondering, you know, what are the unique aspects that I can touch on, or how you know how did you make how did you tell the story differently than
1: right? Well, I left out almost all the battles and all of that stuff because I wasn't interested in them anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tried to what I did was sort of follow from her place of birth in the northwestern part of France to all of the places she went. And so I used those places as sort of touchstones mm-hmm. for significant moments in her life. And actually, there's a beautiful map at the front of the book I was there. that sort of shows how she traveled uh, and what she experienced in each of those places. Mm. So she... Felt that,
0: or she said that she received a message from one of the saints. From three. From three saints to go out into the world and,
2: and,
1: right. and battle. So so at the time, and this was a difficult part of it because it was the 100 Years' War. Mm-hmm. And it had split off by that time into a civil war between England had thought they had a claim to the French throne. And the French queen had signed a treaty saying that once her husband died the King of England would be the King of France Mm -hmm. and she bypassed her own son who should have been the rightful heir. Mm -hmm. So he was living in the South kind of holding out there. uh, And Joan of Arc was living in the North. She supported, which was all English supporting, but her little part supported the French. So when she, she was illiterate, she was a peasant girl. Uh, And when she was 13, she was in her father's garden, and she says she was visited by St. Michael, and then later by Saints Catherine and St. Margaret. And they told her that she was going to end the 100 Years' War, that she was going to get the king coronated, that she was going to lift the siege at Orléans, which was kind of the last ditch If the French lost that battle, Mm -hmm. the war was over. So she waited until she was 16, and then uh, through sort of amazing circumstances, she found her way to the south of France and found her way to the rightful heir, the French heir. Mm -hmm. (coughs) So here she was, this 16-year-old girl, illiterate, Never... She had no military training, of course.
0: Yeah.
1: And she says to the king, I will get you coronated. I'm going to save France. Hmm. So... um, And then she did. Uh, So... You know, I had so many questions when I was writing the book, and I still have them. Yeah. Because... Today, if Joan of Arc were among us today, she would be hospitalized and medicated mm-hmm. and we would have a diagnosis for her and that would be that. Right. But in fact, she was... She was so single-minded. She. It's not like she woke up one day and said, oh, now, you know... Another angel speaking to me, and they said, you should do this, or I should do that. Mm-hmm. It was always really consistent. And she was very thoughtful and smart and witty and all those things in every other part of her life. Mm. So, it, you know, it's really, to me, now when I think about it, It's really about the boundaries of the human experience, and how little we understand it. Mm -hmm. Because what we want to do is say, no, that's not possible, she's sick, she's crazy. Right. Or we want to say, she was a saint. Yeah. But, maybe there's something else that we don't understand.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I picture a lot of people saying, well, that probably didn't happen.
1: Right. Nowadays, right? So,
0: you know, that can't be true.
1: Well, you have to. You either have to be a Catholic, I guess, and believe mm-hmm. in saints, mm-hmm. um, or not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I just—I don't know. To me, the human imagination is so limited in a in a way Mm -hmm. that perhaps what she experienced as saints was something else that we don't really understand Mm. well that's in a
0: way what i think we're doing a lot with this with art you know i don't think an artist necessarily knows what they're doing it's not necessarily a conscious deliberate choice to you know take on some of these paintings they don't necessarily know what they're going to get to when they when they're starting right um but it's at the edge of the of the conscious and it's trying to make sense of what we know what we don't know what's beyond the boundaries right you know
1: i think that's so true i mean i have the experience now both with bull and with um uh, voices. I try not to reread anything I've written because I'm scared to. <laughs> but I'm preparing now for some school visits, and I have to sort of look at them again. Mm-hmm. And I have this experience of: Did I write that? <laughs> really? I, yeah. 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 I. You know, I kind of. I don't exactly remember uh, doing no it, or. Yeah, it seems like somebody else wrote it, or something else wrote it. Yeah. So I think what you said is was really right. Now, why did you call it voices? Oh, I don't know. It's you know she heard voices, and there are many voices in the book—the voices of the people who either condemned her or supported her. And then the voice of the fire. the fire, the fire speaks in the book and is kind of her Her lover in a way, her seducer, I should mm. say. So the fire speaks throughout the book and has a voice. And then her needle, her armor, her swords, her horse, all those things have voice. Mm. So, so to me it had like a resonance for many.
0: Yeah.
1: Did she ever have a mate? But no, yeah. it was super important. That when St. Michael saw her uh, in the garden, or when she says he came to her, the only thing he said at that time was, be good. And I think she took that to mean, be a good girl, mm-hmm. be a virgin. Uh-huh. And, you know, Joan of Arc never went by that name. That's what we call her. Yeah, She was called the maid, meaning the Virgin. Oh. I think in French it was La Pousselle, the Maid. Oh. Uh, so throughout Europe in her lifetime, people knew her as the Maid. Mm. Uh, and it was very important for her to be a virgin.
0: Yeah, she doesn't seem like the type that would be let herself get sidetracked with that. Anyway. No, it was
1: all, <laughs> no, believe me, she she did not appear to be. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, do you know if she killed anyone with a sword?
1: She says she never killed anybody. Okay. So she told other people to kill. She led other people (laughs) into battle, right? But she says she never, never killed anyone. Interesting. So I was reading some stuff last night
0: on her to kind of prepare, and one thing that I found was the letter that she wrote, I think, to the King of England, basically threatening. You know, you better stop or we're coming for you. Yes. It was written on March 22nd. Yeah. Which is like 590 years ago. Is it, what's today's date? Tomorrow, I think. Yeah. Um, so we're coming up on an anniversary. Right. Day. But that letter was really interesting. One, because I I knew she was older, so she had someone helping her. Right. Um, but the intensity and ferocity in, in a letter like that from a girl that's, you know, 19 years old. Right. We're coming for you if you don't stop. That was great, right?
1: So bold, sort yeah. of saying, you know, I'm giving you a chance.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Get out, or you're going to be really sorry. Yeah. So and at that time, she wrote that. I think she was 17 when she wrote that letter, okay. or when she dictated that letter. So, um, yeah. So then, she after she guts. was captured, she must
0: have spent a lot of time before they burned her at the stake. In, in captor, basically.
1: Yeah, so she was... <coughs> one, th- you know, Joan of Arc loved men's clothes. She wore men's clothes, and it's one of the things, really, that got her into trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... She was at a place called compiegne and she had already had the king coronated. And so she had already really accomplished what her voices told her to do. But she just couldn't go back to life on the farm. And so then she tried to take Paris, which was held by the English, and she was wounded there. Uh, and that kind of diminished her uh, you know, her prowess. Yeah. And, and the noblemen around the king, most of them hated her because, first of all, she was a girl should accomplish what they could not have. But also because at the time there were these, uh, they were called sumptuary laws. And they were laws that dictated, for example, what kind of dog the king would have and what kind of dogs peasants could have. That sort of thing. And (laughs) they had to do with like what people wore and everything. And so, you know, she was dressing and acting like a noble person. And uh, She was she wore men's clothes, but she was a bit of a fop. She I love that. She loved fancy men's clothes
0: Okay.
1: Uh, so they hated her already. Yeah, and so after she did not take Paris. They said well Now look right, you know you you shouldn't be associated They said to the king you shouldn't be associated with this weird peasant girl. Yeah so she went on to Compiegne and she was wearing a gold cloak, kind of trying to scare, you know, in that same intention as a letter. Yeah. And somebody pulled her off the horse with that cloak. Oh. Uh. Uh, so she was captured. And the king could have ransomed her, but didn't. Uh, and so the military then turned her over to, it was at the time of the Inquisition, and the military turned her over to uh, you know, a religious and ecclesiastic court. Oh, really? Uh, and even though they were French, they were supporting the English. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, I think she was in captivity almost a year. Okay. Uh, and one of the things they they asked her, oh, you can read exact transcripts oh, really? from the trial that condemned her. And then 26 years later, mm-hmm. the king said, wait a minute, I can't go down in history having a witch uh, in my, you know, right. in my circle of supporters. Yeah. So let's have another trial. Oh. A little, you know, 24 years too late for Joan <laughs> of Arc. So he had another trial and they called in her friends and her family and people who fought with her. And then they revoked the findings of the first trial. Okay, but those transcripts are available. You can read them online. Oh, those must be interesting. Yeah, and in the first one, I can't tell you how many times her accusers asked her why she was wearing men's clothes, who told her to take off, who told her n- not to wear a dress, mm-hmm. why wouldn't she wear a dress, over and over really? and over again. And in the end, she got scared and said, okay, I'll put on a dress. And then she went back to her cell and put on men's clothes. And the next day they executed her. Okay. And burned her alive, right? Burned her
2: alive,
0: yeah. Which is quite the way to go out. Yeah. Did you
1: touch on this in the book? Well, I didn't. um, I mean, she's telling her whole story in the book from the stake. So she's already tied to the stick. She's looking back. That's nice reflecting. Yeah. So she says... um,
0: Well, don't give away the ending.
1: No, no, no. no. (laughs) Well, you know what happens in the end. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) But at the beginning she said, I've heard it said that when we die, our soul discards its useless shell and our life will flash before our eyes. Is this a gift from heaven? Or a jinx from deepest hell, only the dying know. But what the dying know, the dying do not tell. Mm. So her life then passes before her eyes, and she's commenting on what she sees. Oh, nice. Uh, in in fact, her last two words were, "Jesus Maria."
0: I think that was at the beginning of the letter that she wrote.
1: Yes. Why? Um. You know, I can't. I'm first of all, I'm not a medieval scholar, and and you know, I'm kind of a junior know-it-all on Joan of Arc, which is really dangerous, <laughs> right? Uh, and they, that was also on a ring she had. Oh. Uh, one thing I read is that that phrase, Jesus Maria, was used. I better not talk about it. But it was used by a. group... By a Catholic order that was out of favor with the Pope and with Oh I President. see. So and I don't know I don't know why she used that, but she did.
2: Hmm.
0: And use it as her last words. Right. Well. Wow. Well, I can't wait to read it and hear your hear your take on it. Yeah. Thanks. A couple of weeks here. And um so what are you
1: what are you working on now? You you're not writing that anymore. No, and I'm very happy I'm not. (laughs) I'm going back to, um, after Bull, I said, okay, I'm going to retell a fairy tale. A particular fairy tale that I liked. And um, I was about 20 20 or 25 pages into that book Mm -hmm. when I switched to Joan of Arc. And so I'm going back to that book.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah. Is it a little
1: lighter? Yes, and not so much, you know, there's so much expository material, as you pointed out with Joan of Arc. I mean, there's so much context. Yeah. And I wasn't that interested in that. So yeah. it was hard to get as little as I could, but enough that the reader could understand what was happening. That must be hard to balance, because you don't, sometimes you just want to write things your way. You don't want to go
0: research what all everyone else has had to say. But also that's important to consider.
1: Right. And you can't really understand Joan of Arc unless you understand something about the Hundred Years of War. So I had to get some of that in there. Right. So yeah, this I can, it's just me. Yeah. Yeah. Now
0: what's your practice for writing? Is it a secret or can you talk about it? Do you have certain hours
1: of the day that you go in the office? I should be working on the fairy tale book right now, because my dead Oops. not yeah yeah because my deadline is 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 it's kind of a killer deadline mm-hmm. uh, but I work well under pressure, yeah when I said I'm indolent, I mean it, isn't that just a procrastinator yeah <laughs> yeah, so true that's what they say, at Colby Sawyer, yeah, so I'm waiting. And right now there's a lot of pre-pub stuff about voices and it's hard to give myself fully over to but on a typical day. Yeah, once Always I get yeah, once I get started um, well, I I told you before that I'm I I'm trying to get in shape now for the first time in my life. Mm -hmm. And so that takes a lot of time as it turns out. After 71 years when you have done and eaten whatever you wanted (laughs) to. Uh, So I I have that going on too. Um, What I will do is I'll get up in the morning I have a little yoga stretching routine. I'll do that. And then I'll go into my office. And I will work anywhere from three to six hours wow. once I get going. But, you know, once, well, you you probably know this, but once you get going on something, it, when people say, how long did it take you to write that? I always love what Joni Mitchell said. Somebody asked her how long it took her to write a song, and she said, well... Ten minutes and my entire life previous to that. <laughs> right. Perfect. Yeah. So it's with you all the time. Yeah. Uh, so once I actually get going on that book, it, I will be thinking about it all yeah. the time. Yeah. Uh, but
0: three to six hours at a stretch can, can seem like a lot. But I think a lot of it is, is well, I'll ask you, is it getting your butt in the chair and grinding out those hours... Yes. Yes. That's it. There's a lot of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it. I think people have the wrong idea. You know, our, our culture is so celebrity-driven. Mm-hmm. And so people love to talk about talent and all of that stuff. And I suppose you have to have a particular... Like, as I said, I have a good ear for language. Mm-hmm. But... It is so not about inspiration mm. I mean inspiration might be the thing that causes you that gives you an idea, mm-hmm. but you know inspiration's kind of worthless after that it doesn't last it doesn't last right so it's it is really work mm. I mean, I don't like it when I Go to schools, and kids will say, Can I have your autograph? Which I think, Why? <laughs> you know, what are you going to do with it? Well, what are you going to do with it? You know, what I always say to them is, That's really interesting. Do you ask your teacher for her autograph? Oh, yeah. Or if the plumber comes to your house, <laughs> do you ask for his autograph or her autograph? Because Writing is work. It's like teaching. It's like plumbing. It's like landscaping.
0: So why do we put a writer on more of a pedestal?
1: Yeah. uh, Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just like this. Part of it is the celebrity stuff, which. Well, and and you're scaling
0: and reaching more people than most, I guess.
1: Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I try to think of myself now as like a, a scribe, like a medieval scribe <laughs> just sitting in my little cell <laughs> copying down what trying to hear yeah. what's already there and mm-hmm. trying to get it on the page. It's hard. I'm I'm I struggle. It's a it's a you know, okay, it's not as hard. I think of my mom who worked in a factory for eight hours yeah, a day. You're not okay. complaining. Right. But but it is a grind.
2: There's a blue collar aspect to it.
1: There is. You have to, you know, people are always saying, oh, I have an idea for a book. Mm -hmm. Good. (laughs) But, you know, it's only until you write it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's only that.
0: Yeah, because I picture you, you know, or I guess sitting in your office with a nice cup of coffee and hammering out a, you know, quietly typing away a big piece of the book every day. Yeah, (laughs) it is
1: not that. It is more like, oh, shit. (laughs) You know, or um, I always try to leave uh, a little bit undone from the day before. Yeah, it's a good good practice. So that I can, I know that I'm going to have a place to start. And I always go back. The first part of my writing day is always going back and reading what I've read, and sometimes I never get beyond that because I'm changing that and fixing that. And yeah. Now, what about about
0: these moments throughout the day, you know, that are inspiring, or there's so many things that happen that we could pay attention to and grasp onto and think, I could write about that. I could use that in my book. How do you pay attention to those, and how do you hold onto them?
1: Well, I used to count on my memory. I can no longer do that. I I never could. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, now I, uh, often I have, um, do you know what field notes are? Yeah, a little. Those little notebooks. notebooks. Yeah, I love those. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So, I have one of those in my pocket, and I will scribble down a note. Okay. Uh, Or, uh, you know, I might run up to my room and, have a note just type a line or say this could happen or that that kind of thing Yeah, I think it's important to figure out a
0: way to hold on to them
1: right because Yeah, you, know, you you think you're gonna remember them. They're like dreams kind of and then you go to re- recall it and yeah, you can't
0: yeah
1: Well, that's great. I think it's a
0: show Okay, it's I hope I didn't clear. talk too much. That was great um if people want to see you or talk to you or um, have a conversation
1: with you, when, where can they do that? They can go to my website, David Elliott Books, two L's and two T's, uh, com, mm-hmm. And there's a contact button there. And I think that's the easiest way to do it. Nice. Yeah.
0: And will you be... You'll be at Gibson's bookstore soon. I'll Can be at Gibson's. About that,
1: yeah, I'll be at Gibson's on the uh, twenty of March. That's a Friday at six o'clock, and I'll be talking more about uh, writing voices. Mm-hmm. I'll read a little from it, and I hope people will have questions. Nice. I hope people will be there. Please come. Because otherwise, I'm going to feel like a jerk.
0: (laughs) No, there will be people there.
1: Um, uh, And we'll have a little fortified wine, a little fortified French wine. Just a little bit. uh, And a piece of cake.
0: Very nice. Yeah, you had cake for the last time I was there. Yeah, yeah. That was fun. Okay, well, looking forward to seeing you there.
1: James, uh, thank you so much. Thank you.